This podcast is brought to you by DMX, made by the largest global e-discovery software and service provider, Epic. DMX delivers e-discovery business intelligence in North America, Europe, and Asia, and is powered by Microsoft. To learn more about how you can use DMX on your next e-discovery project, go to epicsystems.com slash DMX. This episode is also sponsored by Bloomberg Law, an all-in-one platform that provides fast access to the information law firms and legal departments need. To request a trial, go to bna.com slash Bloomberg Law. I'm Josh Block. Welcome to Big Law Business. This podcast focuses on the business of law, how the largest corporate law departments and their law firms do business. We are recording today's podcast on August 15th. Earlier this month, the New York State Bar Association released a report based on a study of how much men and women lawyers speak in the courtroom. The report found disparity and gender imbalance. Joining me to discuss the findings and her own experiences and recommendations is a member of the task force that worked on the report, former United States District Judge Shira Shenlin. Judge Shenlin, tell me about your experiences as a federal court judge. What did you witness from the bench in regard to who did the talking between male and female lawyers? What I witnessed in the court room was a great gender disparity in privately retained counsel. So when there was a civil case with both parties being private, in other words, no city, state, or federal government, it was almost invariably a man who did the speaking. There was an occasional woman in the courtroom, but she was way in the back, so to speak. Uh, On big cases, I remember entering the courtroom any number of times and seeing 19 men in suits and one lone woman, young, somewhere in the back, and the men did the talking. This was not the case if the city, state, or federal government was a party. That means in a criminal case, the government is always the prosecutor, the plaintiff, that is the United States versus so-and-so, and the assistant U.S. attorneys in the office were, seemed to be pretty equal men and women. So women had lead roles as prosecutors. Also, there were women in the federal defender's office. So if the defendant was indigent and had appointed counsel, it was often a woman. Not if counsel was retained. If, 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 in, a, if in a criminal case, the defendant was rich enough to hire a lawyer, let me tell you, it was always a man. Almost never saw a retained woman in a criminal case. But federal defenders uh, did have equal number of women attorneys. Same thing with the city, the Corporation Council of the City of New York and the State Attorney General. Both of those had a probably equal representation of men or women. So it made a big difference whether it was public sector or private sector. When a judge sees this happening with the, in the private sector, with the private client in the courtroom, sees a male attorney repeatedly conferring with a female attorney, that's what you described in, in your op-ed, right? When he's asked a question and he goes back and talks to and confers, is there appropriate action that a judge can take that they should take? You know, I suppose that could be a controversial question. I think judges might take different positions from each other, but I know what I thought. So the first time it happened, that's fine. The second time, but if a, if a lawyer interrupted himself for the third time and said very politely, may your honor, may I have a moment, which means I need to confer with my young associate, by the third time, I think I could equally politely say, since he did ask a question, may I have a moment, I'm allowed to say at that point, maybe you would consider letting Miss Smith finish the argument as she seems to 
know the facts in the law quite well in this matter. So a polite way of saying it. And when and I did that, and each time I did it very politely, the partner, the male partner would say, sure, of course, he would sit down, ask her to stand up and finish the argument. So as long as everybody's polite about it, I think it works out. And and I wouldn't do it on the very first occasion. Lawyers are certainly welcome to confer. And sometimes a male lawyer confers with a male associate, of course. But if it's constant, if he's constantly interrupting himself, I think it's fair to do that. And do you think other judges should? Have you talked to other judges about I it? I have a little bit. And I also uh, had a interesting time reading the comments to my op-ed. You know, you can go online and look at all the people who choose to comment. And while I would say the majority of the comments were very supportive and very favorable, the ones that weren't so favorable did raise this exact point and say, the court shouldn't be interfering in a client's choice of counsel. And if the client wants senior attorney Joe Jones to do the talking, that's up to the client and it shouldn't be up to the court. It's not the court's business to pick the lawyer for the client. And I understand that. I can't I can't pick the lawyer. But it's my courtroom and if somebody is as I said not prepared or needs to consult every 5 minutes and is interrupting his own argument, I think it's fair to very politely suggest suggest that maybe he'd like to let uh, the junior person, whether it's a him or a her, finish the argument. So I think the court has a role, but has to be careful. This was an observational study where judges took notes on the genders of the lawyers who spoke in court. Tell me about how the study worked. You might notice that attached to the study... There's an uh, in the appendix, a, I think. ...is yeah. a questionnaire. Yeah. It's a questionnaire. And uh, actually, I uh, did the first draft of that questionnaire. That may sound immodest, but truth is okay. So I did the first draft, and then the other members of the task force commented, and we improved it together. And this is the format of the form. So... The judge. This is online for people that would like to see it, oh, and good. I'll I'll put uh, I'll put a link to it in our show notes. Good, so that the the for those of you listening who want to look at the actual form, I think that's helpful. So the judge or his or her court deputy uh, would fill out the form for every appearance, every appearance, civil or criminal, for a, I think it was about three and a half months. It was Labor Day to Christmas, essentially. So early September to mid-December, and the hope was every case. Now, no judge was compelled to participate. Most of the courts made it voluntary. So we went to the chief judge of a court, and the chief judge asked uh, his or her judges if they would agree to participate. And we had pretty good participation around the state. We had, uh, I think, three of the federal district courts. We had the New York Court of Appeals, the Second Circuit, the appellate divisions, and then the, most of the commercial divisions. So we had a lot of participation. We had about 2,800 responses. And that means a response is counted as filling out this form. So that's the methodology of the study. We talked about the differences when we have private parties and, right. and public sector clients. And we know that for the last 20 years, it's about 
50% of law school graduates oh, I think have been more. Women. I think 25 is a uh, modest uh, estimate. It's probably more than 25 years, but go ahead. Uh, that 50% of law yes. school graduates have been women. Correct. Right? And I think it's even slightly, it went over. 51%, yeah, 52%, 52%, right. right. <laughs> and yet only 18% of equity partners in law firms are women. You lay out recommendations to try and ensure, the, the task force does, and you do in the op-ed that you wrote. Ah. Um, so talk about the recommendations to ensure that women attorneys obtain an equal place in the courtroom. What are the re- recommendations for law firms specifically? Well, we divided the recommendations into three parts. Recommendations for the clients, which means the corporate, generally speaking, corporate entities are the clients, although there are individuals who are clients. Recommendations to law firms. And the third leg was recommendations of what the judiciary can do. Let me start with the clients, because I think that is probably the, <laughs> the most important place to start. After all, the clients hire lawyers. The clients in most corporate environments, I think are pretty serious about diversity. And they're making real efforts in their boardrooms and in their own senior management to be sure they have diversity because diversity is actually good for a company. There's been a lot of studies uh, by psychologists and sociologists that uh, diversity avoids groupthink, that you have different perspectives, you reach a better result. And hey, come to think about it, a corporation's Uh, customers are diverse, right? Corporations are selling to a very diverse population. So they, they need to and do recognize the benefit of diversity. Now, having said that, they need to make sure that they uh, carry through when selecting counsel and they, they should be requiring that their counsel field a diverse team. And there are Examples We put them in the report of companies that have really been serious about that and have said, we won't even hire you unless you show us that a certain percentage of the people who will represent us are diverse, whether that means women or minorities, different ethnic groups, whatever it means, we want a diverse team. Some companies have withheld payment. Some, some companies have actually tracked the appearances to be sure that those diverse lawyers are getting an opportunity. So I think it all starts with the client. If the clients are serious, then the law firms are gonna listen. That, that, those are the people who, who pay their bills. Uh, We're also seeing, of course, an increase in general counsel being female or or in-house counsel office, and that will help too, hopefully, because one of the problems, I think, in all of this is sort of a, a loop that the senior men at the client know the senior men at the law firm, and, and, and it sort of stays within a family circle. As that circle expands to, to be more diverse, that will help. So that, that's that's what I have to say about clients. Now, law well, firms- Well, let me just oh, take it ahead. a I wonder sure. if a step further, just on the clients, Sure. couldn't we push this further and say, if law departments institute a rule and they told law firms, if you want our business, then women must have speaking roles in the representation or we'll find a new law firm. Right. Does this change overnight or is that naive? Is that not- <sighs> It doesn't change overnight, but this is hardly overnight. There have been companies who sort of took this pledge, they call it a pledge, Mm -hmm. years ago, years ago, and yet we don't see a change in the statistics to show that it's really done much. So it has to be more than taking some pledge that some bar association writes and circulates. It has to be a serious commitment. So it would be naive to think it could happen overnight. But, you know, I think there are many of us who've reached the point of saying, if not now, when, which is what we the title, we of, the title of the report. Right, exactly. Let, let's go already. We've been talking a long time. It's time to act. So it's a matter of the will to make it happen. 
So the recommendations for law firms. Okay, law firms could do a lot more than they are doing. You know, they hire 50% women, but by the time it comes to partnership, the women are gone, and as you said, there are 18% partners. Where did those other uh, 32% go? So there are lots of answers to that. One is maybe the women aren't selecting the litigation department. Big firms have a lot of departments. Maybe the life of a big firm litigator is just too harsh. Uh, the idea of being given an assignment at 10 p.m. and being expected to stay all night and seven days. And it's a very difficult life to, to cope in the, in the big firm. It's a big law. But uh, beyond that, once the women are in the litigation department, are they getting an equal opportunity for speaking roles? And one thing I think that the law firms can do is to track their own performance. That, that is, to me, the biggest recommendation of all. And what do I mean by that? Every quarter, they could circulate a questionnaire to see how many people took depositions, how many people defended depositions, how many people argued in court by gender. And if their first, second, and third year classes, let's say combined, just hypothetically, are 50% female, they should be getting 50% of those depositions, those court arguments, those client meetings. And if it turns out, if they question it, that they're getting 20%, that's, that's your red flag. Then, then the, the big law firm knows it's failing and has to correct it. Right now, I don't think they collect the data to prove to themselves whether they're really being equal in assignments or not. You know, you can, you, can, you can fool yourself. You can think you're being equal, but unless you track it on a quarterly basis and make sure it's the same, it won't be the same. Why is that? Because if most of the partners, and the statistic you gave a moment ago, 82% of the equity partners are men, it's a very natural thing to work with people who look like you. There's a comfort level in it. You have to travel together, you go to dinner together, you go to outings together, golfing, whatever it is. It's a natural thing that people tend to be with people who are like them. And we, we know this, we know this with ethnicity, religion, uh, economics, whatever it is, people tend to be with their own kind. And that's a problem. They have to break the habit. Uh, the, the senior male partner has to say, in my last case, the senior associate was a male. I'm going to find a senior female associate or I'm going to find a junior female associate. I'm going to make sure my team is diverse. So that's one of the things the firm can do is to track that the assignments are equal. But we make other recommendations um, in the report of what the law firms can do. They can be sure from the beginning that they give training in speaking. A lot of people have a fear of speaking. I know I used to. It took years to defeat it. They can make sure that they do training programs where all associates give an opening statement, a closing argument, a cross-examination, whatever it is, so that people are comfortable on their feet. They can be sure that the females get the same opportunities to meet the clients. Going to client meetings is a key. They can make sure that people are assigned a mentor within the firm. And then we distinguish mentorship and sponsorship, which is a very different concept. The sponsorship idea is not that I'm teaching you or mentoring you on to how to take a deposition or how to make an argument, but I'm making sure senior management is aware of you. I'm promoting you. I'm making sure you have speaking opportunities. And by that, I mean, not only in court. There are times people are asked to uh, go to a bar association and join a committee or present a report or be on a panel. Um, 
And those opportunities showcase you. They bring you to the attention of the public at large. So the, the firm needs to make sure that their people are being sort of out there, are, are taking these opportunities. So I think those were the key recommendations for what the firms can do to promote their women and their minorities. One more thing I should add, they should make the life reasonable for their for their employees. I know that sounds old, it's been around, but it could it's still so true. The the way the big firm often operates with the endlessly hard hours and the surprisingly overnights and all weekend, it, it's just not conducive to family life for anybody anymore. And they can be sure that they are allowing people to work remote, that they're providing daycare when possible, that they're you know just aware of the needs uh, of the female associates. Because there's a much higher dropout rate, by the way, of the female associates compared to male. So that even though they come in at 50% of the entering class, they don't, they don't rise all the way to the partner level because they're taking themselves out of the picture because it's just not conducive to their being there. One of the things that we've been talking about and writing about on our website, Big Law Business, and we actually have a story coming out, which may be out by the time our listeners are listening to this, which is about women who leave Big Law, even after they've made partner, to start their own firms. Uh-huh. So we've been following this idea, which may be a trend, and, and like the numbers that you're saying that law firms the data that they need to collect. We don't have great data on this, but the trend that we're seeing and the notion is that if women used to leave big law for work-life balance, more now we're seeing that they're leaving for business reasons. There have been well, that's interesting. The, the two the two big names that I noticed recently were Roberta Kaplan from Paul Weiss and also Beth Wilkinson, also Paul Weiss. Yes. So these were two women that already had just a gigantic name and a gigantic practice. And I don't know the motivation of either. Uh, in some sense, it could have been, I want to build my own shop in my own way that has my own values and culture and, it, and is comfortable in the way that the, the bigger firm that I came from can't be. Or maybe it was economic. Hey, I can, I can make more money on my own. I, have, I don't know. I didn't ask either of these very prominent women why they chose to do what they did. But it's interesting because Beth Wilkinson left with another woman. <laughs> Can't recall her name right now, but I know her. They were both before me on a very big antitrust case, in which I might say they did a fabulous job. Um, and, of course, everybody knows what a great lawyer uh, Robbie Kaplan is. Uh, but I don't know whether they wanted to build something themselves, which is a great s- satisfaction, or, or whether it was that and financial and less constraints of a big law firm, less hierarchy to have to report to, less conflicts. There could be a whole lot of reasons to why to, why, to go out on your own. But I think those two stories are pretty unusual. They had big names and those big are unusual clients. because those are big, big names. clients but what we're finding yes uh, right and they got plum assignments yeah, what, we're, what i'm talking sure. about uh, is our people the women that we're talking to were women who made partner and just found they weren't getting credit for the work oh. they're getting they weren't getting they weren't nothing was getting passed down to them even though they'd made partner and they could start their own shop might be a small shop but they could have control of their work they could they, they're saying they'd still hey i still work just as hard right. i may or may not make as much money in some cases you're making more money and sometimes you're making less, but you have control of work and you're getting better assignments because you're controlling that. I'm just wondering if you think that might have something to play here. And I do. I don't have the access to those stories that you've had. I haven't talked to those women and I don't think I know any examples myself of the kind of story you're describing. And yet, that said, I can understand fully what they're doing because one of the things we know is that there's a gender pay gap 
at, at big firms that even if you're an equity partner, you may be earning less than the fellow next door, even though you both became partners at the same time. It's just known that you're not getting the same, same pay. You're not getting the same opportunities within the firm in terms of which cases or clients come your way. You're not inheriting the clients, which is really, really important. We talked about that in the report a little bit, which is transitioning when senior lawyers retire, who's inheriting their cases. Again, it tends to be somebody who looks like them and who has spent a lot of time with that client. So if the women aren't getting the same opportunities, even after they've made partner, they aren't getting the same opportunities, they aren't getting the same money, they aren't get, getting, in short, the same satisfaction, then they should leave and, and start their own shop if, they, if they're willing to take on that risk. It's, it's obviously safer to stay where you are. You're part of an organization. But if you're gutsy and want to go out there, I, I do think that could be one of the motivations, that you really aren't being treated as well as your male colleagues. When I looked at the study, I didn't see numbers in regard to specific law firms or in regard to big law versus boutiques. Is that something that was collected? Is that something the task force might look into in the future? Or do you even know things anecdotally? We certainly did not mention any law firm by name, nor did we collect any data by law firm. So it's not something that I have any data-driven information on. Whether we would do that eventually, I doubt it. I don't think a bar association would want to sort of call out the winners and losers as to who's doing it right and who's not doing it right. I think a bar association wants to make a larger uh, generic point. I only have some sense that, for example, at Quinn Emanuel, there's a lot of very strong women who are in very senior positions. I'm very impressed that that, that firm uh, has had women of that quality. Kathleen Sullivan is a name partner. Sheila Birnbaum is there now. Faith Gay is an amazing litigator. So that firm seems to have a lot of women and a lot of powerful women. But again, it's kind of an atypical big law firm. It is big law, but it's built itself in an atypical way. Um, obviously, the fact that Roberta Kaplan and Beth Wilkinson and now Chief Judge McMahon all grew up at Paul Weiss is a good sign that that firm has been able to promote uh, women to leading roles. Other firms, I think less so, but I'm not prepared even anecdotally <laughs> to share with you my sense of which firms are overwhelmingly uh, male in their control and hierarchy. What I will say is that there are very few heads of litigation departments or managing partners of the whole firm who are women. We know we know that in terms of managing partners of big law firms, it's a very small number. There are always a few, just like there are a few women CEOs, but they're always the exception. So there aren't very many managing partners of law firms, and there aren't very many heads of litigation. And until women rise to those levels, uh, I don't think we'll see a big change. Do you have a sense of whether, and I know it's not in the report, but the boutiques that really represent the same sorts of private clients here. Do those boutiques, do women do better there? My sense, and it's only an impressionistic sense, so it could be inaccurate, is sometimes those boutiques were formed by a group that included a woman. So let's say three guys and a woman go out and start a firm, or two guys and a woman, or even one guy and one woman go out and start a firm. I've certainly known AUSAs who decided to form their own shop in, in let's say, white-collar crime or invest, internal investigations. And in those situations, if the woman is part of the founding of the boutique, then, of course, 
she and her uh, junior colleagues will have an equal opportunity. But otherwise, I don't really know the answer. I'm wondering about your career. You started in big law for a year after law school, and then you moved. You eventually became an assistant U.S. attorney. Were you thinking about these types of things, the type of assignments you might have, the opportunity to speak in court? Yes, I started out in big law, but that's just a traditional start. Most young lawyers want to get their feet wet at a big law firm for the training that it gives, for the pay that it gives. It's, 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 it's not atypical. I've had, I would say, 50 law clerks uh, over the years that I was on the bench, and all of them pretty much want to start there, even though most of them have no intention of staying there. They're kind of using it for training and for pay. And I always wanted a public career. I always knew I was going to be a, a public servant. That, that's why I went to law school. So I did that one year, but then I was a federal court law clerk. I was an assistant U.S. attorney. I was a general counsel of the New York City Department of Investigations. I became a magistrate judge. Then I went back to practice for eight years between magistrate judge and district judge, frankly, to make a living. I had two kids who were on the verge of college at that time. And it was really tough to put them through on the salary of a magistrate judge, which at that time was, to be frank in one word, terrible. We hadn't had a raise in forever. And so it was an economic necessity. But when the time came, I was more than happy to go back to the bench, as you know, and then spent 22 years in the district court. And by then, the kids were grown up uh, and really didn't, didn't need my financial support. So I was lucky. I was able financially uh, to be in the public sector. So I don't know that I was really thinking about disparity of assignments, but I did realize that on the public side, I'd have much more of an opportunity to be in the courtroom earlier in in a leading role. And when I was an assistant U.S. attorney in the Eastern District of New York from, uh, I was going to give you uh, 77 to 81, I tried 13 cases, 13 jury trials as lead counsel. That was And that doesn't even happen now because there aren't enough trials. So most young AUSAs don't get that number of trials. But I did, and it was a great start to a career. When you returned to private practice, you didn't go to big law. You went to smaller firms. You know, it's funny to look back at at the decisions you make and how they came about. In 1986, when I left the magistrate judge job, I really wasn't looking to leave. I was courted off the bench. So somebody uh, reached out to me and sort of made an offer I couldn't refuse. That's an old story. Somebody just got the bright idea uh, of trying to woo her off the bench. So I was wooed off that bench, which made sense to me anyway, because I didn't think that magistrate judge was where I wanted to end up. I didn't want to stay in it for 30 years. I wanted to move on, although I respect the magistrate judges who did stay for that length of time. I, I, I was a little more maybe ambitious. I don't know if that's the right word. So I got courted off. Um, and, 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 and then from that firm, I went to another firm where I had some contacts and friends. Uh, but I'm awfully glad that I got back to the bench. I wouldn't have wanted to spend the next 22 years in private practice. I enjoyed the bench much more than private practice. Right. And I guess so what I'm getting at, if these types of issues that are in this report had anything to do with your decisions in your career? Uh, only the opportunity to, to speak more, to, 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 to be my own person, so to speak. Big firms have a lot of hierarchy. You, you wait years for your opportunity to be 
the lawyer for the client to be the lead person in court. You don't wait at all in the public sector. You're thrown in. You, you're thrown into the water and you have to learn to swim. I, and I had also gone to school a little bit late. I had had a five-year gap between college and law school. So I was a little older. I'd already had kids, by the way. By the time I started law school, I already had two children, which is unusual. So I felt mature and grown up. I didn't want to spend years uh, working myself up the associate ladder. I just said, that's not for me. I don't have the patience for it. So yes, in a way, the things that are in here did play into my mind, meaning I didn't want to be the, the woman sitting next to the man waiting for the opportunity to speak. I didn't have that kind of patience. I wanted to be the one. I wanted to jump in and speak. So I knew that the public sector had that opportunity. But I also had a commitment to public service. I, I think I did, and I believe it today. Tell me about the advice you give to women, young lawyers who come and ask you. Mostly it's, it was my, it's my law clerks or former law clerks, uh, which where I'm sure at least half female, maybe more, maybe 60%, I'm not sure. But I always tell them going to a big firm is a good thing at the beginning. It's where you're going to get the best training and work on some of the best cases. And if it's your thing, you'll stay there and you'll make a career. And I'm proud to say that some of my female law clerks are partners at the biggest firms in New York, which is very nice. But if it's not for you, with that as a base, you can always move on. Uh, Having been at a big firm is a great credential. It's great on your resume. Uh, But if your heart is in public sector work or public interest work, I should say, as well as public sector, because there is a difference between public sector and public interest. But if your heart is in public interest or public sector, after a few years, follow your heart. Do what makes you happy, because there are a lot of unhappy lawyers, and there's been studies of this. Lawyers as we know, drink too much. Uh, they're they're depressed. <laughs> they they get uh, they end up with medicine, taking medicines that that bec- they become addicted to. So lawyers are not the happiest bunch. So if you're not happy, it's not good for you. It's not good for your family. Move on. Don't 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 get stuck in an unhappy situation. That's the advice I give them. So I encourage all of them to do a stint in private, a stint in public, such as the U.S. Attorney's Office or the Corp Council or the AG. Three great public offices, and then to move on from there. And I'm happy to say most of my law clerks have found very nice homes. Also covered in the study is ADR. Can you tell me about that? So the report has a section up front where it tracks the literature both for women in the courtroom and women in ADR. And I I really found the literature section of the report as interesting as the uh, data part of the report. But what we know is that women have not been doing as well in ADR as their percentage, again, in the profession. It's a problem. We know that international arbitrations is the worst of all. Women appear as the arbitrator uh, only 4% of the time in big value cases. As the cases are smaller, we see more women arbitrators, but but still stays in the range of about 10 to 15% internationally. Domestically, the numbers probably vary from 15 to 20%, but that's, again, it's almost the same number as we were giving in the courtroom or as equity partners. So women aren't seeing themselves rise uh, in the ADR field to the extent they would like to. And again, I think that's because clients are ceding the selection of an arbitrator or mediator to the lawyer. The client actually, you know, of course, doesn't really know the backgrounds of each of the possible mediators or arbitrators. So they say to the lawyer, well, I trust you, I hired you, you pick. But that lawyer is often 
a male in a senior position in a big law firm, and he's comfortable with the people that he has seen and used over the years. And a lot of retiring lawyers are going into this field, and they're men who themselves were senior partners at the firm. So now they're going into the field, and one senior partner partner picks another senior partner, and the field is just not opening up as much as I'd like to see it for for uh, females who do neutral work. Now, the other thing I've noticed in my year and a half in this field when I am a mediator uh, is that I'll walk in the room and lo and behold, all the people in the room are men just as in the courtroom. So when I walk in on a, on a mediation and see five, six, seven males, I have the same reaction um, that I had when this occurred in the courtroom. So on both ends of the ADR field, both the selection of the neutral and those who appear we have the same problem. That said, it, there's an interesting phenomenon that I'm sure is true in the courtroom too that we haven't touched on, and that's by subject matter. So in certain subject matter areas like employment discrimination or family law uh, or disability law or f- even fair housing, certain fields, you'll see many more women percentage-wise than in the big commercial cases uh, such as contract antitrust securities. So interesting, or environmental for that matter. The big, the big money cases is where you won't see women. But in employment and the fields I mentioned, there you will. And the same thing happens with the selection of the mediator. So in certain fields, you'll see more, and in certain fields, less. And I'm glad you asked. That's all for this episode. I also want to note that Judge Shenlin wrote an op-ed on this topic in the New York Times that we mentioned. We'll have a link to that in the notes and on the post. It's titled Female Lawyers Can Talk To. For more on the business of law, check out biglawbusiness.com. If you'd like to contact us, our email address is biglawbusiness at bna.com. Follow Big Law Business on Twitter at biglawbiz. Follow me at joshblocknyc. Thank you for listening. We'll be back soon with a new episode. Subscribe on iTunes so that you you don't miss it. This podcast is brought to you by DMX, made by the largest global e-discovery software and service provider, Epic. DMX delivers e-discovery business intelligence in North America, Europe, and Asia, and is powered by Microsoft. To learn more about how you can use DMX on your next e-discovery project, go to epicsystems.com slash DMX. This episode is also sponsored by Bloomberg Law, an all-in-one platform that provides fast access to the information law firms and legal departments need to request a trial, go to bna.com slash Bloomberg Law.